Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was always something else. It was Molly Ringwald. It was what it was A&M Records. It was something weird and had nothing to do. Welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name, where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book, as well as some artists I love and respect. Today's guest is Jimmer Podrowski from the band The Rave Ups. If you're kind of a music nerd like me, you might remember watching the classic 80s movie Pretty in Pink and seeing the band prominently featured in a few of the club scenes singing their songs Positively Lost Me and Rave Up Shut Up. You naturally ran out to your favorite record shop to buy the soundtrack and were disappointed that not even one of those songs was on there. What happened? Let's start at the beginning when members of the Rave Ups were working in the mailroom of A&M Records, the same record company that would go on to release the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. Terry and I, Terry Wilson, the guitar player, and I worked in the basement uh, on the A&M lot. There were two lots. There was the front lot and then the lot that was, I guess, just south of the main lot. And we, the basement uh, uh, where we worked was in the basement of the southernmost part of the A&M lot, which now is the... Uh, the Muppet Guy studio. It, it was originally the Charlie Chaplin studios and then it became A&M Records and now I think it's whoever the Muppet Guy is. I think it's his studio. Jim Henson. I th- Yes, right. Uh, but so t- Terry and I were the only ones who worked in the basement. We were left alone our bosses were even on the, you know, pretty far away on the front lot. And our job was to mail out everything promotional aside from, uh, no, we did mail out records. Uh, so we had posters and flats and stand-ups and everything. And 
Terry was amazing at it because he had worked there for years before I started to work there. And he had that thing wired to the point where he was saving A&M a lot of money just because he knew how to ship certain things. And I'm talking about heavy, like stuff you had to put on a pallet and then use a pallet jack and take it up to the lift, you know, and that's where we worked every day. But unbeknownst to A&M, at night, when the four of us, you know, Terry, Terry and I worked in the basement, but Tom and Tim were actually mailboys. They were the guys who went from office to office all over the lot and delivered people's mail. So they knew everyone. Terry and I never really saw anybody. We were left alone. As long as we did our jobs, nobody really paid attention. Uh, but that, but at night when everyone was gone, we would turn that basement into our rehearsal space. So the drums were all set up, the amps were all there. The only person on the lot, any any given time, was one of the guards uh, who didn't give a damn. And then when the rehearsal was over, we would move boxes around with pallet jacks and hide all the equipment just in case early in the morning somebody came down. And that's how we got to play as a band. We didn't have money for rehearsal space, but this seemed like we could pull this off. And we did, believe it or not. And, and here's where the pretty in pink thing comes along. You know, we were told we were on the soundtrack. Uh, Tim was informed by, I'm not going to say the guy's name because he's dead, but he was the guy and he's beloved in the music business. And I don't want to say his name, but he and I, you know, I thought he was very unprofessional. When he died, everyone was, they don't make them like that anymore. You know, which I just, it was heartbreaking to me because he was one of the reasons why, even though the band appeared in the film, we, we sang two songs and we were connected to AM. I mean, you know, even though we were grunts and nobodies, we still were connected to AM. And his secretary told us to bring the masters in, only to be told. When Tim walked them up to the front lot, oh, you know what? We don't need them. And that was it. At this point, I think it's important to point out that getting on a soundtrack, especially at that time, was a big deal for a band. I spoke with Sarah Shannon, lead singer of the indie rock band Velocity Girl, who had one of their songs, My Forgotten Favorite, featured on the soundtrack to a classic soundtrack from 1995, Clueless. From the point we, we got that, you know, got put on that soundtrack, it was in our bio forever. <laughs> it's a boon um, publicity-wise. Uh, it's a boon financially. You know, we still get uh, residuals, you know, almost every quarter from Clueless and 
I think it's officially in the uh, pantheon of classics. <laughs> and so it, it gave us, I mean, you know, the, the, the money that we got is not nearly enough for any of us to retire on. But it became a, a key talking point in us promoting, promoting everything from there on out. As soon as Tim let me know that, God, I can't remember her name, Ellen, I think it was, said, oh, Timmy, I'm so sorry, we don't need them. I, I walked up to the front lot myself because the guy's offices were right there, right there in that open part of the, the lot, and I could see his fucking Porsche parked there. And I screamed for him to come out and come down, and he didn't. I think his secretary came out and said he wasn't around. But no, you know, we were never given any sort of, as a businessman, all these years later, it makes sense if they could get Suzanne Vega song or a, an NXS song or whatever. I get that, but they should have never done it the way they did it. That's all there was to it. It was really unprofessional and it didn't have to be that. So we, we never did get a, a reason and we never did get an apology. Everything about the band was bizarre and serendipitous and none of it had anything to do with the, the actual music that we made and the songs that were written. It was always something else. It was Molly Ringwald. It was what it was A&M records. It was something weird and had nothing to do. So that's why we, you know, we went, we went from one extreme to the other. We'll never get a real answer as to why the rave ups were left off the soundtrack. Music supervisor David Anderley passed away in 2017, and producer John Hughes died in 2009. I did speak with the director of Pretty in Pink, Howard Deutsch, who has a theory. You know, I, David Anderley, who produced the soundtrack, and uh, John uh, had so many um, decisions to make about that soundtrack, and I was a part of it, but not as big a part of the uh, soundtracks of my other movies, so I was busy while we were shooting and um, editing and so on. And I don't really remember, to be honest with you, how, wh- how that happened. I think they just had a certain amount of A&M acts that they wanted to get on that soundtrack. And I don't think they were with A&M. So I think that was part of the problem. After the disappointment of not getting on the soundtrack to Pretty in Pink, the band went on to sign with Epic Records and released Book of Your Regrets, which gave them an opportunity to really be a band. We were finally making a living doing what we wanted to do. So, you know, it was great in the sense that Epic allowed that. You know, we got we got an advance. You know, uh, it, it was a lot of money. Um, and we got to be a band. So for, you know, again, when we, when we, when we turned the music into them, I'm not sure how happy they were about it. 
um, I know meeting with the art department and the first record was called the book of your regrets. And, uh, we met with our product manager and the art people and the comment from more than a few of them was, you know, this is kind of heavy, you know, it's, it's, it's a little heavier and sadder than uh, town and country, (laughs) you know, being the wise ass that I was, I was like, you didn't get any clue to that from the title, the book of your regrets, you know, but again, in my heart, I think that the book of your regrets was probably the band's masterpiece. And it was without a doubt, the weakest selling thing we ever put out. And I don't get that. Maybe I'm just out of touch with the general public. But in my mind, that was the band's masterpiece. And nobody bought it. Hell, even Epic didn't buy it because we went out on tour. We toured as the opening act for the church for a month or two. And we came home and they said, go back in the studio. We're not, we're not getting enough ads and enough sales. So go make another record. And that was it. It was about a two or three month stretch and they just gave up, you know, and I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, whatever happened to working a project, you know, that, Hey, you know, this band might not be an out-of-the-box winner, but with a little work, meaning at least six or nine months, maybe you can get some kind of breakthrough. Epic gave up after three months. And then we went back into the studio and started making another record. That second album, Chance, yielded a minor hit with respectfully King of Rain, but the band still broke up in 1992. After a long hiatus, Jimmer released his first solo record back in 2013, The Would Be Plans, and a second release followed in 2017, God Like the Sun. With the passage of time, it seemed inevitable that the rave-ups would reunite. Uh, You know, it came to be like almost everything else in my career musically, and it was serendipitous you know there, there was no agenda uh I, I had released i was about to release a solo record in 2019 and one that was predominantly done with terry wilson who was the guitar player for the rave ups and there was a song on there that terry really wanted uh to add to the record he was the producer and uh and i wrote most of the songs with him too but the song that he wanted to re-record i had already released i made a few records with uh various members of dwight yoakam's band and uh mitch marine who's dwight's drummer produced those records and we had already done a version of the song that Terry was interested in, in recording. And his, his pitch to me was, what if we get Tim and Tom, 
who are the drummer and bass player, respectively, of the Rave Ups. What if we got them to come in and play on the song? And, you know, my my bent on that was, well, that's not a Jim or Solo record. That's a Rave Ups record. Because it's the four <laughs> Rave Ups playing, and I would feel funny about that. Plus, inside of me, I thought the version that Mitch and I recorded with Brian Whelan and Ted Russell Camp was great. And I didn't see doing a remake of it. And I certainly didn't see doing it with the Rave Ups because then that would have been a Rave Ups thing. And that wasn't what this project was about. So I, I, I literally knew after not seeing these guys for a long time, that Tim would be the first one at the studio because it was his little studio out in the valley. And I went there a half hour early because I not only knew Tim would already be there, I knew that Terry and Tom would probably be late. And they were. And I'm glad because I immediately said to Tim, I, I don't want to re-record this song. Like, there's other stuff that we can do. And he and I began to play a song that we had already played. It had never been released. It was a song called Violets on a Hill, uh, which ended up on this record. Um, and by the time Terry and Tom got to the studio... We were Tim and I were already locked into putting this down, and that song that I didn't want to re-record was never brought up. But it was a great time, and it was a great night, and it led to, hey, you know, th there's other songs I have, and I'm sure we'll write some more. Why don't we just keep doing this? And that's exactly what we did. That Rave Ups record is called Tomorrow and was released in February of 2022. Please go check that out wherever you get your music. And that's it for this episode of Live Through That. Thank you to Jimmer for taking the time to share his story and to Sarah Shannon and Howard Deutsch for bringing their experiences to this story. Keep your eyes peeled for a bonus episode with Howard where he'll talk about some of his favorite musical memories from Pretty in Pink. That'll be out within the week. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Redux, that features Jimmer, is available wherever you buy your books. If you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. See you next time.